house or its inhabitants, he was ready at last to join me. With hands that were almost ladylike in the swiftness and delicacy of their movements, he hiked the crease in each trouser leg and took his seat. He moved with a notable lightness for such a large, heavy-set man. "'How would you prefer to be addressed?' asked Emmanuel Isidore Lonoff. "'As Nathan, Nate, or Nat?' or have you another preference entirely? Friends and acquaintances called him Manny, he informed me, and I should do the same. That will make conversation easier. I doubted that, but I smiled to indicate that no matter how light-headed it was bound to leave me, I would obey. The master then proceeded to undo me further by asking to hear something from me about my life. Needless to say, there wasn't much to report about my life in 1956, certainly not as I saw it, to someone so knowing and deep. I had been raised by doting parents in a Newark neighborhood neither rich nor poor. I had a younger brother who was said to idolize me. At a good local high school and an excellent college I had performed as generations of my forebears had expected me to. Subsequently I had served in the Army, stationed just an hour from home writing public information handouts for a Fort Dix major, even while the massacre for which my carcass had been drafted was being bloodily concluded in Korea. Since my discharge, I had been living and riding in a five-flight walk-up off Lower Broadway, characterized by my girlfriend when she came to share the place and fix it up a little, as the home of an unchaste monk. To support myself, I crossed the river to New Jersey three days a week, to a job I'd held on and off since my first summer in college— when I'd answered an ad promising high commissions to aggressive salesmen. At eight each morning, our crew was driven to some New Jersey mill town to sell magazine subscriptions door to door, and at six we were picked up outside a designated saloon and driven back to downtown Newark by the overseer, McElroy. He was a spiffy rummy with a hairline mustache who never tired of warning us, two high-minded boys who were putting away their earnings for an education, and three listless old-timers, pale, puffy men wrecked by every conceivable misfortune. Not to fool with the housewives we found alone at home in their curlers. You could get your neck broken by an irate husband, you could be set up for walloping blackmail, you could catch any one of fifty leprous varieties of clap, and what was more, there were only so many hours in the day. Either get laid, he coldly advised us, or sell silver screen. Take your pick. Mammon's Moses, we two college boys called him. Since no housewife ever indicated a desire to invite me into the hallway to so much as rest my feet, and I was vigilantly on the lookout for lasciviousness flaring up in any woman of any age who seemed even half willing to listen to me from behind her screen door, I of necessity chose perfection of the work rather than the life— and by the end of each long day of canvassing, had ten to twenty dollars in commissions to my credit, and an unblemished future still before me. It was only a matter of weeks since I had relinquished this unhallowed life, and the girlfriend in the five-flight walk-up, whom I no longer loved, and with the help of the distinguished New York editor, had been welcomed for the winter months as a communicant at the Quasi Colony, the rural artist's retreat across the state line from Lonoff's Mountain. From Quasi, I had sent Lonoff the literary quarterlies that had published my stories, four so far, along with a letter telling him how much he had meant to me when I came upon his work some years ago 
in college. In the same breath, I mentioned coming upon his kinsmen, Chekhov and Gogol, and went on to reveal in other unmistakable ways just how serious a literary fellow I was, and hand in hand with that, how young. But then nothing I had ever written put me in such a sweat as that letter. Everything undeniably true struck me as transparently false as soon as I wrote it down, and the greater the effort to be sincere, the worse it went. I finally sent him the tenth draft, and then tried to stick my arm down the throat of the mailbox to extract it. I wasn't doing any better in the plain and cozy living room with my autobiography, because I could not bring myself to utter even the mildest obscenity in front of Lonoff's early American mantelpiece. My imitation of Mr. McElroy, a great favorite among my friends, didn't really have much to recommend it, nor could I speak easily of all McElroy had warned us against, or being to mention.